Christ does the baptism and He immerses every believer with the Spirit. And by this Spirit baptism, every Christian is immersed into the body of Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. When was the last time that you contemplated the establishment, purpose, and mission of the church? Do you value the church, the called-out ones, the body of Christ, in the same way that the Bible does? Or do you think, like many in today's culture, that the church is an aged and dying institution? Well, today Tom begins a new six-part series titled The Church in God's Eternal Plan. Throughout this series, we'll explore what the Bible has to say about the church. Tom will examine how the church was built, for whom the church is intended, and what the church is meant to represent to the world. You'll be reminded that the church is just as important today as it was when Jesus established it, and it's absolutely essential to the work of God today. And Tom, can you share why this topic is so important for us today? Sadly, I think for many, the church's role in their lives has gradually declined over the last several years. I think some of it's been because of the realities of COVID and not being able to meet for a time. Some drifted because of that away from the regular and faithful attendance of church and connection to the life of the church. I also think the church as a whole is is in a sort of unhealthy state. And because of that, there isn't the emphasis on really what it means to belong to a church and to be connected to that church as a family in the New Testament model. We're going to see that today and in the days ahead as we look at what the scriptures really say about the church. The church is at the very center of the heart of Jesus Christ, and it ought to be at the center of your heart as well, and we're going to study that together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. When did the church begin, and how exactly does the church differ from Israel and from the kingdom of God? Where on the stage of the drama of redemption does the church fit? When did it begin and how long will it exist and what is its purpose in this great eternal plan of our God? And how does it relate to the other things the Bible says God is doing in the world? These are all important questions for us to ask and answer because they have to do with where we spend our time and our priorities and it comes back ultimately to the church. So let's begin by asking the basic question, when is it that the church began. Well, this is a huge historical debate. Let me just tell you that there are essentially five views. One view says the church began with Adam, with the very first man who ever expressed faith in the seed of the woman that would come. Others would say, no, it really began with Abraham and with the covenant that was made with him. Still others would say, no, the church began with Christ and One writer even details four possible times during the ministry of Christ when the church may have begun. The call of the first disciples, perhaps, or the confession of Peter in Matthew 16 when Jesus said he would build his church. The Last Supper, which established a new covenant. And then others would say, no, 
it, it came about when the apostles joined together in united belief in the resurrected Christ. At that moment, the church was born. A fourth position says it began with Pentecost. And yet a fifth position said, no, it began, the church began with Paul. This, by the way, this last view is what is called a hyper-dispensationalist view. This view believes that there was some other kind of church in place until Paul, but it was not the New Testament church of the epistles in the church age. So where is it? Where did the church begin, and in the end, why does it matter? Well, let's start with a look at the biblical data. Exactly what does the Bible say about when the church began? Now, there are some hints in a number of passages, and I want us to look at them tonight. I want us to begin with Matthew 16. Turn there with me. Jesus mentioned the church by name, the ecclesia, twice during his earthly ministry. Once in Matthew 18, when he mentions church discipline, tell it to the church, he says. And the other time in Matthew 16, and I want us to look at it together. Now you'll notice in verse 13, we get some historical context for what's going to transpire. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, on the far north end of that part of the world, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What are you hearing people say about my nature, about who I really am? And they said, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, which was a pretty silly answer in, in the fact that John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan. Others, Elijah in anticipation of the prophecy that ended the Old Testament. And still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, then he asked the question more directly of them, who do you say, plural, he's asking all the, the apostles, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, typically the spokesman for the group, speaks up to let it be known what they think. Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I want you to see here that Peter makes no reference to the humanity of Christ. He makes no reference to Jesus' earthly name. Instead, his reference is to two titles of Jesus Christ. One of them is the Christ, which of course comes from that great Hebrew word, Hamashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one specially anointed by God, to carry out the mission that's described in the middle part of the book of Isaiah. And you are the Son of the living God. This was a confession, both of the fact that He was the promised one in Isaiah, come as the servant of Yahweh to accomplish salvation, and He was at the same time not only a man on a mission, but He was God. He was the Son of God. So in these two words, in these two titles... Peter captures both who Jesus is and what he's here to accomplish. He is the Son of God, and he's here to accomplish all that the Messiah was predicted to accomplish in his life and in his death. And Jesus said to him, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He says, listen, you didn't come to this on your own. This was a revelation from God. And then in verse 18, we come to the crux of this passage. I also say to you that you are Peter. This word, as you've heard, is a Greek word which means a stone. And upon this 
And he changes the Greek word. The word for rock there in the second occurrence is for a large rock, a foundation rock, a bedrock. And he says, you are a stone, and upon this bedrock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means. What is this rock? And there are essentially three views of that. What do we mean by the rock on which the church is built? Well, let me mention before I show you these that remember that Jesus was probably speaking originally in Aramaic. In Aramaic, there is only one word for rock, and it's the name God, uh, that Christ had already given Peter earlier in his ministry. You remember he said when he initially um, was introduced to Peter, he said, you are Cephas, you are a rock. That's the only word there is in Aramaic. As it's translated here, the words are changed, and I think that influences how we interpret this passage. So there are three possibilities. One is the rock is Peter. And not that we take straw poles to see what interpretations are, but I've included that here just for your information. I thought it was interesting that 17 of the early church fathers agreed that it was Peter, and eight more said it included Peter and added the rest of the apostles. So the, the rock is either Peter or the apostles, this group says. The second answer says, no, the rock is Christ. 16 of the church fathers said that. By early church fathers, you understand what we mean. Those in the early days of the church, after the death of the apostles, and before the Middle Ages, in that period of time. Sixteen of them, in their writings, say, no, the rock is Christ himself. And, of course, Christ is portrayed as a rock in other places in Scripture. A third view of this rock is that it is, in fact, Peter's confession. Forty-four of the early church fathers took this view that it's not Peter and it's not Christ, although Christ is certainly a rock, but in this context, the rock on which the church will be built is the confession that Peter made about the nature of Jesus Christ and his mission. Now, folks, in the end, it doesn't really matter a lot. Let me show you why. Let's assume for a moment that Peter is the rock. If it is Peter, it's not Peter in and of himself it's related here to his confession. In fact, just a few verses later, look down in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him after Jesus said he was going to be crucified, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is a bad plan, Lord. But he turned to Peter, verse 23, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You see, when Peter was right about Christ, he was the rock on which the church would be built. When he was wrong, just a few verses later, he was Satan. So this isn't about Peter and some great person that he was. He was a man who was a man of clay feet, just as we are. By the way, if you want to read, and absolutely, some of you who have uh, Catholic families who have heard a lot of Catholic theology about Peter being the first pope and and all of that, if you want to read an absolutely crushing blow to that view, get Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology and read the section on Matthew 16, 18. He traces through about 16 or 17 reasons why that's absolutely impossible. It's a, a crushing blow to that view. But I think sometimes as Protestants, we steer away from wanting to say it's Peter simply because we're afraid that we're going to seem Catholic. 
it is possible that it's Peter. And as you can see, there were many in the early church before the time of the Catholic Church who believed that, in fact, it was Peter. But if it is Peter, it's not just Peter. It's, it's what Peter was saying at that moment. As Clowney writes, in confessing Jesus to be the Christ, he was the rock. In tempting Jesus to refuse the cross, he's Satan. So understand that if it's Peter, that's what we're talking about. Ultimately, it comes back to his confession either way. If it's Christ, if the rock here is Christ, then it's the truth about Christ contained in the confession of Peter. And if it's the confession, then it's Peter's confession about the true nature of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't really matter in the end. They're all connected. They're all related. It's in essence the same as Paul's comment that the church is built on what? The foundation of the apostles. And by that he didn't mean because they were such wonderful people. He meant because they had been selected sovereignly by God to be the purveyors of the revelation of God and the church is built on their words and their writings. So, what can we draw about the church and when it began from verse 18? And what Christ says. Well, there are three conclusions I think we can draw from Christ's words. Number one, the church was still future when Christ spoke these words. He says, I will build. So at this point in the ministry of Christ, the church is still future. Secondly, I think we can conclude that the church is distinct from, but related to the kingdom of God. Notice verse 19. He's just said, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, I will give you, singular here, this is probably to Peter, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Basically, he was giving them authority to practice the discipline of the church. By the way, this same statement is made just a little bit later in another gospel of all the apostles. So it's not just Peter. It's all the apostles that are included here. But notice he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So we can conclude that while the church is distinct from the kingdom of heaven, it is related to it. And the third thing we can conclude is that the church is distinct from the nation of Israel. How can we conclude that? Well, Israel already existed. And yet Jesus says, I will build my church. The allusion is to a new entity, to a separate entity. Since Israel already existed, but the church was still future, it must be distinct from Israel. So that's our first little clue that we get in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Let's turn now to the book of Ephesians, because there's several more clues in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul is in the middle of a prayer here, and he says, I want God's power to be at work in you, and this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in heavenly places. And far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Notice now we're talking about, verse 20, the resurrection of Christ, when he raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, at one point in time, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The clear implication of this passage, and we wouldn't build our entire case on it, but the implication is 
that the church didn't come about, that Christ didn't become the head of this new entity until after what? The resurrection. So there's another little clue to build, begin to build our case. But Paul goes on. Notice Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Let's get back to verse uh, 11, because this is where the paragraph begins. He says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, so he's talking now to Gentiles, which is, of course, most of what the church in Ephesus would have been. Remember that you were at that time... And in verse 12, he details the previous state of Gentiles. Before the work of Christ, this is what we were like. And he lists five very negative statements. You were separate from Christ, from the Messiah. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no legal rights. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You weren't included in the promises made to the Old Testament people of God. Having no hope, and you were without God in the world. That was our desperate situation. But notice in verse 13, a new state for Gentiles has been initiated. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So in other words, the whole situation has been reversed. And then he explains what he means by this. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, that is, Jews and Gentiles, one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments. So somehow the law stood as a dividing wall between the Jews and Gentiles. So that in himself, watch verse 15, he might make the two into one new man. You get the picture? Here the idea is not our becoming part of the church as it had always existed, but rather the creation of something entirely new and different. Therefore, in verse 19, he says, you are now fellow citizens with the saint. You are God's household, a reference, of course, to the church. Verse 21, this, you're part of this whole building, this holy temple unto the Lord. You are being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. So here is yet another hint that there was something new that happened with the sacrifice of Christ. Now turn over to chapter 3, verse 5. He's talking about a mystery here. Biblically speaking, a mystery is something which was not previously known, at least in its entirety. It may have been hinted at, it may have been prophesied, there may have been clues to it, but it wasn't fully and completely known and expressed. But now has been revealed by God. Verse 5. In other generations, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men, at least in its fullness and its entirety, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, here it is, here's this great mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to say that this mystery which was hidden in God is now being made known through the church. The mystery is the church. The mystery is in the church. The two are being made one. And of course, as we've seen, that happens through the sacrifice of Christ. There was the new mystery, or the mystery revealed, was that not that God would bless the Gentiles. That was promised throughout the Old Testament, even back as far as Genesis 12:3. You remember, in you all the nations of the earth will be what? blessed. 
So what's the difference? What's the big difference that he's talking about? Well, in Galatians 3, verse 28, I think he puts it very clearly. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Those distinctions have been done away. This is a new thing. Now, the timing gets a little clearer in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, the ascension of Christ is mentioned. Verse 8, He ascended on high. Verse 9, He ascended. And with that, uh, in verse 10, we're told again, He ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. And with this ascension, notice several things happened. At the ascension, we're told, verse 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, He gave spiritual gifts to the church. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, all those spiritual powers He defeated, and He gave gifts to men, a reference to spiritual gifts. At the ascension, this was accomplished. Notice in verse 11, at the same time, something else happened. Christ gave the church gifted men for the equipping of the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ so at the ascension spiritual gifts were directed and spiritual men were given to the church and so the church could not have existed what prior to that time prior to the ascension now there's one last verse that is very interesting it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 it says for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free and we were all made to drink of one spirit now stay with me here I'm going to give you a little logical argument we're told here that the church is being built by believers being baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit Christ does the baptism and he immerses every believer with the spirit and by this spirit baptism, every Christian is immersed into the body of Christ. And of course, we just learned from Ephesians that the church is the body of Christ. And all of this takes place at the moment of regeneration. Now, keep all of that in mind. We're talking about spirit baptism. When did that happen? That's how the church is built. So before the baptism of the spirit, the baptism with the spirit, the church did not exist. Well, in Acts 1.5, turn there with me, let's see if at this point there was the spirit baptism that immersed believers into the body of Christ, which is the church. In Acts 1.5, at that point, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, what? Not many days from now. So, that immersion in or with the Spirit that is necessary to join us to the body of Christ hasn't happened yet. And so it's safe to argue that the church itself has not yet begun. So when does this happen? What is Jesus referencing here? Well, when you get to Acts 2, there is no specific reference to the baptism with the Spirit. But turn over to Acts 11. In Acts chapter 11... We're told in verse 15, as Peter reports what happened with Cornelius and the gospel going to the Gentiles, he says in verse 15, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them 
just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Now, do you follow what Peter just said? He said, listen, what happened at Cornelius's was what happened to us at the beginning, and that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The beginning here can only mean one thing. What? Back to chapter 2 of Acts. Pentecost. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled The Church in God's Eternal Plan. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.